Thank you for listening to this programme from the Forever Manchester Radio and Podcast Network. Forever Manchester is a charity that raises money to fund and support community activity across Greater Manchester. Check out forevermanchester.com to find out more. With me now is a gentleman who could perhaps be described as a broadcaster, maybe a sports pundit stroke broadcaster, an author, and I'm sure there are a lot of other strings to his boat as well. Ian Cheeseman. Can I get a bit personal now? Yeah. Do you have to overcome loads of... Do you fight with your insecurity often? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, uh, you know, what? despite what people might think when they hear and see you in the media... They, they they feel they can see a confident person who has no self-doubt. Um, I, I said to you earlier in this interview that I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm actually quite a shy person. Uh, and people... I, I do some chats to groups of people who invite me along. I do it quite regularly, actually. I'm doing one this week. And it's, it's a group who are wine brewers and, and beer brewers. Again, you wouldn't think, why would Ian Cheeseman do that? And it's just them. It's just me with some humorous anecdotes from my, from my life. And when I stand in front of those people, I often say I'm quite a shy person. And I get a laugh, actually, just from saying that, because I've said it just after I've done a lot of stuff which is quite over-the-top and outrageous and quite gregarious. So they, they've never met me before. They think, ha, 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 he's not shy and quiet. We can, that's the gag, isn't it? But actually, I am. And actually, I can sit very quietly in a corner when I'm not performing and be in a party, not that I go to that many, but I can be the quiet person in the party who says nothing that everybody says, isn't he boring? Whereas if, but if somebody comes over to me and says, will you talk to us, will you do this, then suddenly I can throw a switch. But that isn't without fear. If I'm in my comfort zone, if I'm doing the things I know I'm good at, so if somebody says to me, commentate on this football match, it's a Manchester City game and I want you to do it right now, then that would be when I would be at my most confident and relaxed. Somebody said to me, in five minutes I want you to get up and speak to 300 pregnant women. I don't know what they want from me, I don't know what they're expecting from me, and I'm assuming that none of those 300 women are even going to know who I am. So therefore are going to look at me with much more sceptical eyes, looking to pick fault in me, whereas I know that the audience I'm speaking to when I'm doing a city commentary probably already knows me, but if not, I'm confident enough in what I'm talking about and the experience I've got to get away with it, shall I say. So, uh, standing up in front of 2,000 male voice singers, in front of a crowd of which only a handful of people would have even heard of me, was very nerve-wracking and, you know, had me quaking in my boots. But all the experiences you've gone through in your life hopefully mean that you can hide that scaredness and channel those butterflies and everything and make it work um you know and you know that if you make a mistake if you've not gone in too serious in the way that you're presenting yourself then it allows you to make a mistake and laugh at yourself and get away with it Mm. whereas if you took yourself really seriously from the start and you make a mistake there is nowhere to go there is nowhere to hide so that humility that i said about why i was a city fan when i was a little kid that's still in me and feels like it's an essential part of, of my coping mechanism. Tell me about being an author. You wrote an autobiography. I've written three books. Well, I've written two, two full books, and I've contributed to a book. My hero's Colin Bell. Um, I ended up writing his autobiography, 
which wasn't going to be an autobiography, it was going to be a biography when I started writing it, and came about because I'd been trying to persuade him to do an interview rather like the one we're doing, where he was the victim, so to speak, mm-hmm. and he was too quiet and shy and didn't want to do it. But I did a favour for him. I got him to run the Queen's Baton Relay when the Commonwealth Games came to Manchester, which he loved. But he also made me promise that he would get no publicity from it, and I fulfilled that promise because even when he ran the, the thing, it was never in the paper, there were no pictures of him, no journalist waiting to interview him and he couldn't believe that I'd delivered what I'd promised so he was very very grateful to me and he kept saying this to me and I said well if you're that grateful do the bloody interview for me on the radio and he said no no I said well if you ever write a book I'll write it for you and he went to my astonishment he went well I'm thinking of writing a book are you serious yes I'm serious yes and you're thinking I've never written a book the most I've ever written is an essay at school how can I pull this off but when Colin Bell gives you this chance you don't say no but of course there's another point where I walk away from the situation um, you know can I say shit in it we're really worried about whether I can pull this off Um, I start to write the book um, very determined very methodical and I write it as a biography I go and interview everybody that moves we go and talk to his family in the North East I spend hours and hours and weeks and weeks doing this with him again me, me hero now my close friend and then at the end of it I write it and I get some professional advice and a couple of people say to me and of course it's only ever opinion but somebody says to me who I did really value the opinion of um, because you, you you keep quoting different people you have to really concentrate when you're reading it and I, I find it's well written but I find it hard to read at the time, my father-in-law was seriously ill and I was on a bit of a downer anyway and I lost a bit of heart and I went to say to Colin, I don't think I can do this, um, sorry, you don't owe me a penny. I'll give you all the, the, uh, the, the transcription papers, all the recordings we've done, let somebody who's better than me do it. To his, I don't know what the word is, but he says a lot about him and I'm so grateful. He said to me, I know you've got problems at the moment at home with your father-in-law and I know you're feeling down. Put everything down. I'm not going to go to another author. I'm not going to ask anybody. I want you to do it. Have a six-month break. Have a, have a want, yeah, And then come back to me and we'll do it again. So that's exactly what happened. When I went back to him the second time, I had a bit of a eureka moment and I thought, why, why don't I do it as an autobiography in his words? Because that would be easier to read. And he said, yeah, I like that. So I wrote a test chapter. I read that test chapter to him. And this is a man who's very shy, has very few friends through choice, and is very unemotional. And he cried. And, you know, that took me aback. And he said, that was just brilliant. That's exactly as I want it. And that is exactly what I would say. And I thought, wow, you know. So I carried on writing it in that style. At the end, I read the whole book to him, and he said, that is just absolutely perfect. I said, there were bits in that book, I'll be honest with you, that I never talked to you about, but I guessed what you'd say. And he said, well, you're absolutely right in every word you've written. Then he went, but, and I thought, oh, here we go. And he went, there is one thing in it. And I went, yeah. And he said, you never mentioned that I like Sudoku. And I said, well, you never told me that. He said, oh, I love Sudoku. He says, if you've put that in the book, then it's perfect. So I found an appropriate chapter and put a sentence in that said, I also like Sudoku play quite a lot. Apart from that, he was happy with the whole book. So he never changed a thing, he just wanted you to add a sentence. Yeah. So we put that book out, it was very well received. Um, I very deliberately wanted the book to reflect his personality very accurately, even though I was tempted to have written it more sensationally. Um, and and that might have attracted more readership, more notoriety, more book sales, more money. But that wasn't 
my ethics were that I wanted to get it right for him, that he was happy about, and I was very, very happy with the book. Rodney Marsh then approached me and said, will you write my book? I've read Collins, and it's, that's what I want. Two very different characters, by the way. So it wouldn't have been exactly the same. But he wanted it written in five months. And it took me three years to do the Colin Bell book. And I was working full-time at the time for the BBC. So he said to me, um, you know, it needs to be done in five months. I said, Rodney, I'd love to do your book. I can't do it in five months. I'm sorry, I can't do it, mate. And I'm not going to put out a substandard version just to rush it. He said, but I want you to do it. I want you to do it. He's one and dine me at uh, Raffer's across the road, not far from where we're sat now. Yeah. You know, what do you want? Yeah, yeah, you know, everything I wanted. No, not doing it, stood firm. So he said, what am I going to do now then? I wanted you and now I haven't got plan B and I need it out by May. I said, well, I'll tell you what, this is my suggestion. You do what you want. This is my suggestion. I'll write the city section because because that's the bit I know the best and, you know, that's my expertise, if you like. But you spent time in London playing for QPR and Fulham and England, you could argue, is is a sort of London-centric thing. You also spent time in America at Tampa Bay Rowdies. You own the club, you manage the club, you play for the club and you live in America now. So there's three distinct different parts of your life. And then the fourth part is probably the notoriety since you left sport. You were on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. You are on Talk Sport and all sorts of things happen there. You must know people who were around you in London, around you in America, and around you in your celebrity time. Why don't you get four different authors to write four different parts and then get an editor to pull the four parts together so it sounds like one author's written it? And uh, he said, great idea. So I did the city bit. Three other people did the other bit. It was all pulled together. And when you read it, it says I contributed, which I did. But you, I, I have read it, and I think it's a very good book. And, and it, but you wouldn't necessarily think four different authors Clever. have written it. Clever. Um, and that was your idea. And that was my idea. And then I'd always wanted to write a book about myself, but that's such an egotistical thing to do. Especially for a shy guy. Yeah, and also for somebody who really isn't that famous and who isn't really that well-known. I would say I'm a niche. I'm not a famous person at all. But there are City fans, particularly, um, who, who know who I am and who seem to like what I do, which I'm very, very grateful for. But I wouldn't consider myself in any way to be a name or a celebrity or anything like that. So to, to be so... Uh, pretentious that I would think I can write a book about myself and people buy it that was very very uncomfortable but I thought I have got a story that's different not not many people started off as a steward on the football special and ended up being in the press box commentating on the Aguero goal although to be fair the Aguero goal hadn't actually happened at the moment I wrote the book but you know that's that story you know <laughs> so and and I'd always had it in the back of my mind and I thought, well, I'd done some work for the BBC where I'd been doing some blogs on the website because I'd had some interesting journeys to away European games, and not least the Faroe Islands when City first got into Europe years ago. And people seemed to like that when I was writing these anecdotes on the website. And that gave me the idea, because the BBC didn't want me to do it every week, that maybe I could do a book of anecdotes, which yeah. was basically not the stories of the games themselves, but the adventures around travelling to and from, and yeah. mixed in with things that had perhaps happened at that ground or in, in, in that type of a game years ago. So it was full of anecdotes. So my life story was sort of in it, but in bits scattered throughout the book rather than in one story. So as far as I was concerned, it was a diary of my life for one season, which coincided it being the season that Sheikh Mansur came in and bought the club and City signed Rubinho. So it was quite an eventful season anyway. 
I attended 116 football matches and there was an anecdote surrounding every single game. And um, I was very kindly supported by a businessman who was a big City fan who wanted to help me publish it. So it was sort of published, not self-published, but not through one of the big houses. And uh, and it was and it was put out, and I, I don't know how many it sold in the end. Uh, perhaps three or four thousand, very small numbers really when you compare it to to other you know big books. But for me, it was quite satisfying to do it, and the people who've read it seem to like it. And some people have said, you know, do another one, and I still have the same reservations. I've already done one. Who would want to read another one? There is an argument to say that over the last. 10 years, 11 years since the shake came in, that my story has had a few nice twists and turns and, and I have perhaps may have become a little bit better known. So that there is an argument to say there's a bit more demand than maybe there was 10 years ago, but I still feel very reluctant to do it. And books, by the way, also are a labour of love if you do them. Yeah. You don't make money out of them. No. You've got to really want to do them and put a lot of time in. So um, for all those reasons at the moment... There is no book, but who knows? Watch this space. Uh, Ian, it's been (laughs) fantastic to chat to you. I'm going to just finish with three best stroke favourite questions. You might not be able to answer them all, but let's see how we go on. Favourite game? Well, that is an hard one to pick because, you know, there's so many different games that have been favourites for different reasons, like the first game you ever attend. How, How do you beat that? Um, winning the, the league in 2012 and being behind the microphone and uh, you know a match never to be repeated uh, as a blue winning 6-1 at Old Trafford you know and, and, and even games that don't involve City I saw a game between Barcelona and Valencia uh, which was just a, a beautiful game to watch because I love football and, and even in lower divisions I've got a great deal of affection for teams like Oldham and Rochdale and Bolton and Wigan and stuff like that and I go and watch them all the time and I love every game. Seventy-six League Cup final. Uh, I, I suppose it's the obvious one, really. I'd have to go for which is the 2012 and winning the league and commentating and being such such a part of that because that that game will I'll never forget that game. That was that was the defining game that I'll enjoy in my life. I think the Etihad or Main Road. Again, another one I can't. It's hard to to answer because the obvious thing is to say Main Road because you think well all that tradition that's where I grew up that's where I watched the team in the first place and I have a lot of fond memories there but I'm not one of those people who lives in the past as much as I love the past and I love nostalgia um, I live in the now because that's the only place you can live Um, and I love the Etihad I love the the quality of it the fact that the club has moved on and and has, has become what it is so I love them both so there is no answer to that I love them both you can't answer this one either. Favourite player? Colin Bell was my original hero. He is, uh, I'm not saying I claim I speak to him every five minutes. Um, he very carefully chooses his friends and has wrote in, his, in the book that we finished, he said, I now consider you to be one of my very close friends, which blew me away. And I know that I could ring him right now um, and he would speak to me at length and he wouldn't do that with everybody, or very few people, actually. And so that's would, a privilege in itself. That is a privilege. So, but then you know, I'm very, you know, I've become very close with with other players over the years, and that, that affects your judgment. And obviously, you have players that, that that are very, very skillful or do things that are very momentous, like Aguero scoring the goal, like Yaya Torre doing, just being Yaya Torre for so many years, even though. 
his reputation has been somewhat damaged off with off the field comments, etc. But he'll always be a, a favourite of mine, you know. And and Fernandinho, even in the current team, what a lovely, lovely fella he is. And um, I'm lucky enough to have one of his shirts in my possession. And he follows me on Twitter, which in this modern era where footballers don't do things like that, you know, <laughs> ma- makes me feel closer to him than perhaps uh, I, I might have done. But I suppose it'd have to be Colin. Because he's your first hero is always your hero, isn't he? Okay, okay. Final one, yeah. Before we go, who's been with you the most accommodating manager? Who's been the friendliest? Who's been the most accommodating? Uh, I suppose it'd be Joe Royal, really. Um, you know, Joe was in that era where um, he was approachable. There were no press officers and all that sort of stuff. He was the Oldham manager when I first started my tiptoeing into broadcasting and he came down to Hospital Radio and sat and did this type of programme with me and he's a very giving person and again he's another guy I could ring up right now Hey Joe will you do this he'd almost always say yes and he would always be helpful and he would always be congratulatory to anything I achieved and I, he is a very very genuine lovely fella um, the, the managers more recently are harder to know you never actually get to know them so Pep Guardiola for all I know might be the loveliest person ever but despite the fact that I sit in front of him at a press conference every week um, he'll never know my name I'll never have his phone number and I'll never have a one-to-one relationship with him the only other manager that's anywhere near Joe would be for me Kevin Keegan who again is a is a manager that um, he's very very reluctant to give out his phone number or talk to people. But I have his phone number. I ring him, and last year when he said to me initially when I approached him, "Will you do an interview for me?" He said, "I don't do interviews anymore." I had a bit of a chat to him and uh, talked to him about my what had happened to me at the BBC and told him what had happened, which I don't tell many people. And he immediately said, "I'll do the interview, no problem." Uh, which again said a lot to me about him as a person and because the football that we played in the Kevin Keegan era was so magnificent just like it is now under Pep Guardiola and he is a man who like me wears his emotions and his heart on his sleeve and I believe to be a, a you know a really good human being which is to me the most essential thing in life not about how many things you've done, how many you've achieved, how much money you've got, but what sort of a heart you've got. And I believe that Joe Royal, Kevin Keegan, Colin Bell, all the people that I'm idolising all have that in common. And if they didn't, they wouldn't be my heroes. So if I had to pick one, it would be Joe with Kevin Keegan right there with him. Ian Cheeseman, thank you very much. My pleasure. And by the way, Terry, you wouldn't be sat there doing that if I didn't think that about you as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Forever Manchester Meets, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and like and subscribe us with a nice five-star review. If you want to find out more about Forever Manchester and the work that we do in Greater Manchester, please check us out at forevermanchester.com or follow us on the usual social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Forever Manchester. Nice one. We are Forever Manchester. We are Forever Manchester. We are Forever Manchester. We are Forever Manchester. We're a charity with a clear purpose. A charity with a clear purpose. Forever Manchester. We fund and support community activity across Greater Manchester with donations raised from individuals, families and businesses. Individuals, families and businesses. We are Forever Manchester. We believe that everyone should have the opportunity to be happy. 
and we believe our communities have unlimited potential and boast thousands of talented individuals who know what they want and how to go about it, helping to build happy, stronger, thriving communities. Happy, stronger, thriving communities. We are forever, we Manchester. Are forever Manchester. We don't label people as disadvantaged or define them by problems and needs. We focus on what's strong, not what's wrong. We focus on what's strong, not what's wrong. We provide a hand up, hand up, not a handout, and we aim to strengthen communities and enrich local life by inspiring local people to do extraordinary things together. 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 We are Forever Manchester, and this is Charity, the Mancunian Way. The Mancunian Way. The Mancunian Way. The Mancunian Way. The Mancunian way.